On Christmas Eve 1926, a terrified man stumbled into New York City's Bellevue Hospital, raving that Santa Claus was out to get him. What? The doctors and nurses were unsure of what to do. But before they could even move to help him, the man suddenly collapsed, dead from what appeared to be poisoning. Stay tuned to hear all about that on The Reluctant Historian. What's up, everybody? I'm Liz Lawson, and this is our Reluctant Historian. Dakota Lawson. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. So, if you love history... Or you absolutely hate it. This podcast is for you. We'd like to begin by recognizing that we're recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement and recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. Okay, Koda, what do you think today's topic is about? It's a Christmas episode. <laughs> well, no, I can't do Christmas episodes because we do Christmas episodes at Christmas time. Oh, well, that's why I was a little confused. It's Christmas Christmas in June, I guess? Christmas in July. <laughs> oh, no, it's June. You're right, it is June. Okay, I was like, I was like, am I, am I uh, forgetting myself? Uh, so, yeah, there's a crazed Santa Claus on the loose. I'm just going to guess. Is this a Wicked Wednesday? No. Oh, hmm. Then it can't be a serial killer Santa Claus. I feel like this guy was hallucinating or something mm-hmm. from the poison that he had ingested. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, something tells me it's not going to be as fun as I hope it's going <laughs> to be. Because I really want it to be about a serial killer Santa Claus. Sorry, I think there is. I think there is some sort of history about that. So maybe I could find that for you. That would be great. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Well, I- <laughs> I don't know why I said you're welcome. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, so in my quest to find short history, I typed into Google, quick history facts. And this story came up. It is the story that the U.S. government actually poisoned their own people during the Prohibition era. What? So we're calling this one Prohibition Poisonings. This, uh, after the MK Ultra, <laughs> I guess this isn't overly surprising that the government is doing fuckery. That's great. That's a really good point. Yeah. 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 So. Fuckheads. What's your golden nugget? So my golden nugget's a little different this week. It's something that. Something borrowed, something blue. No, not at all. It is uh, something. Well, you know, I've been called a genius by many people before. People, you know? Okay, okay, okay. People call me a genius. Thank you. And. I came up with an idea. Oh. And is it I, as good as your what Jews want? No, it's not because because <laughs> that one is like brilliant. But it's just another idea. So so we're going to talk about uh poppycock. Okay. Oh yes. So so you've already heard this before, yes. but pretend like you haven't. Okay. So, okay. Ooh, poppycock. <laughs> it's a tasty treat. That's that's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of cock with some poppy seeds on it <laughs> no poppycock is um isn't it that like popcorn with like caramel i and i feel like, like that'd be weird to be like mm, i'm eating poppycock but it's popcorn let me google this you continue with your story okay 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 so so you know how people regularly in these modern times say poppycock it's a brand of candied popcorn weird so does it still exist i think so Oh, weird. Okay. Well, we need to get some poppycock up in this bitch. <laughs> so, so when people say pop, 
poppycock. Like, I don't think people say it as much as you think they say it. They they always say, I always go down the streets and somebody's flabbergasted by something and they go, poppycock. That's right, because we right. live in the 1920s. Yes. So I think that it should be changed to floppycock. Yes. Because. <laughs> I like that you think yourself is so funny. <laughs> I'm hilarious, okay? <laughs> Can you imagine if you're just in the streets and somebody gets flabbergasted by something and they go, floppycock. Well, <laughs> so your goal was that we had to say it like fast enough so that people couldn't. Oh, right. That too. Yeah. Yeah, that too. so that they couldn't. Floppycock. Yeah. And they're like did questioning. He... Did... Yeah. But did he just say poppy or floppy? Right. And then you start to question your own floppy cock. <laughs> you know, it makes you really insecure. Mm-hmm. You're like, do I want to eat poppy cock? Or do I want to get depressed about my floppy cock? <laughs> and then you start going down this trail online of where do I get Viagra nope. without having to talk to a doctor about it? Right. And this would be a perfect opportunity to be sponsored by Blue Chew. <laughs> Are you familiar with Blue Chew? Uh, what? No. Yeah, it's the it's the stuff that uh, we've never used it. Oh no, no, I've um, I've never used it. My hesitation <laughs> makes it sound like I did, <laughs> but but yes, uh, it could help. Uh, you know, with the uh, non floppy cocks, non floppy cocks. But you know, <laughs> it's funny uh, on uh, you know, if I'm on Facebook or something like that, or scrolling along on Google and stuff like that, all of a sudden an ad will pop up like. Uh, like essentially a product that's likened to Viagra for me. And I'm like... It's because you're old now. Well, I'm like, what the fuck? Maybe it's conversations like this about, you know, maybe they're like, well, he said floppy cock so many times. (laughs) He must have one himself. I think it's because you just turned 30. Yeah. They're like, oh, 30. He definitely has a floppy cock now. (laughs) So anyways, let's stop talking about my, my floppy cock. And talk about yours. Well, I think, though, what you really want is you want that to catch on. You want people to start yeah, saying it. Yeah, you know, and uh, I think it's going to become a thing. Okay. You know, uh, people are going to start start saying floppy cock in the streets. Right. Love it. Love that So, what is your floppy cock? Golden my nugget. My I mean. golden nugget. Oof. Girl. Oh, there's two weeks left until school's done. That's my golden nugget, I guess. Okay. Okay. I'm very what, excited. What Love you... summer vacation. Yeah. It's like my favorite time of the year. Nice. No, Christmas is my favorite time of the well, year. Well, of course. Followed by summer vacation. Followed yeah. by fall. Back to school. I'd say, is this, we rank the seasons? Or? Yes, that's what we um, are doing here. We rank the seasons. What, is, what are you most excited for about the summer? Uh, I think sleeping in. I don't know. We have no plans, really. Trying no, to get the no, house we're, sold. We're going to Cypress Hills. We're going to Cypress Hills, but that's really yeah. it. Yeah. We never really have plans for summer. Apparently, I'm really depressed about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, jeez. <laughs> oh, we're going to get to see Becky. Yeah, yeah. I was like... <laughs> like this is a total joke we don't actually have this but i was like i was like oh the way you're speaking it's like why don't you just tell them we have marital issues or something (laughs) (laughs) we never have anything fun to do no and then you give me a look (laughs) we have have fun together all the time we were just talking about this morning that this morning it's true it's true i said you know i have zero percent desire to leave you (laughs) so romantic Yeah, that's, a, that's how I, I say goodnight. I don't say I love you. I said, I say, I have 0% desire to leave you. Yeah. And then I go, ooh, how romantic. Yes. Yeah. But to put a little bit of, you know, pep in your step, make sure that you're, you know, doing your wifely duties, it's going to start going up to, goodnight, dear. There's a 5% chance I'm going to leave you. And then you. I will kill you and it'll be perfect. <laughs> 
I think my favorite part about that too is that you realized it when I was sleeping. Yeah, I was like, ah, right now I have zero <laughs> percent desire to leave her. <laughs> you wake, soon as she you, wakes you up, wake up and it, it shoots up to ten. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh because it's not uh, true. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, not true. So, anyways, this episode is about Santa Claus murdering people. Uh, it's about prohibition poisoning so yeah but this man said santa claus yeah well that's like the one it's a one-off you'll see okay so the majority of the sourcing for this story comes from deborah bloom uh writing deborah for- you know like uh everybody loves raymond deborah. Which I've been watching a lot of yeah lately. uh she was writing for uh, uh uh something called slate i don't know if that's a magazine or a webzine or whatever but she was writing in slate hmm So our story begins with the ratification of the 18th Amendment, which banned the manufacture, sales, or transportation of alcoholic beverages in the United States. This era is known as Prohibition during the 20s. High-minded crusaders who believe their morals should be the driving force of governmental decisions, kind of like how we're going no Roe v. Wade, um, and anti-alcohol organizations had helped push this amendment through in 1919. They played on the fears of moral decay in a country that was just emerging from war. Prohibition itself went into effect on January 1st, 1920. So do you know what prohibition is? I was just going to ask. Because I was like, I realize this doesn't really clarify what that, what it was. Yeah, I was going to ask for our listeners who don't know what prohibition is. I obviously do. So prohibition is a time in America's history. It was about 10 years where they were not allowed to make alcohol. So... We're not allowed to sell it, create oh, no. it. <laughs> so you remember when we went to Moose Jaw and we did the tunnels and Al yeah. Capone? Yeah. So they would bootleg. They would, s- oh. you know, send. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a as a man who doesn't drink, this uh, uh, would be no skin off my floppy cock. That's true. Yeah. However, people continue to drink and in large quantities. In fact, alcoholism rates soared during the 1920s. My guess is in part due to undiagnosed PTSD from the war, mm. but also because if you can't have something, you really want it. Insurance companies charted this increase at more than a 300% increase in alcoholism. To cater to this demand... Hold on, hold on. I'm going to speak to this. If you can't have something, you you want it that more. I, as it stands, as I'm, you know, partnered with you, uh, I, I I don't believe I'm going to get AIDS, I don't want AIDS. <laughs> no, okay, think of something good. Something good. If I was like, you can't have Oreos anymore. Oh, you just said anything, though, you know? Well, that's fair, but like... I'm just saying, like, I'm going off what you said, okay? Okay, so... The point you... is, I don't... I, you heard it here first. Dakota Lawson does not want AIDS. But do you want Oreos? Yes. Because, like, like, I want to go back to this. So if I said, you cannot have Oreos ever again, it's illegal for you to have Oreos... I'd kill myself. There you go. Yeah. You'd probably look for ways to get Oreos. No, I'd kill myself. <laughs> oh, okay. That's a little dramatic. <laughs> so anyways, to cater to this new demand for extra alcohol, speakeasies promptly opened for business. A speakeasy is like a secret place where they could get booze. Oh, I thought that was a poetry slam. <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> By the end of the 20s, there were about 30,000 speakeasies in New York City alone. Street gangs grew into bootlegging empires. Think Al Capone. Bootlegging empires built on smuggling, stealing, and manufacturing illegal alcohol. The country's defiant response to the new prohibition laws shocked those who sincerely and naively believed that the amendment would have ushered in a new era of good behavior. Rigorous enforcement had managed to slow the smuggling of alcohol from Canada and other countries, but crime syndicates responded by stealing massive quantities of industrial alcohol, the kind used in paints, solvents, 
fuels, and medical supplies, and they redistilled it in order to make it consumable. So basically, alcohol is still needed to make stuff. Mm. And it's basically the alcohol that they use to make industrial alcohol is the same as any, you know, like a whiskey or a, a gin or whatever. Sorry, when you say that they need alcohol to make stuff like... Uh... Well, like uh, ointments and shit, right? Like, yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. But so to make it industrial so that you can't just go out and drink it, they put um, chemicals in it to make it undrinkable. But I mean, you can still drink it. Uh. So, but that's what industrial alcohol is, which I find really interesting is that it's basically just regular alcohol with extra stuff added to it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually this industrial alcohol that is the crux of this event that happened. Okay. Yeah. So it was no easy task because industrial alcohol is basically regular alcohol <laughs> with some added unpleasant chemicals that then makes it undrinkable. Oh, so just what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I, well, we know me. Yeah. Uh, so this process, by putting the extra stuff into it, is called denaturing. Hmm. The U.S. government had started this denaturing process in 1906, so before Prohibition, for manufacturers who wanted to avoid taxes that were usually put onto alcohol that was consumable. So it wasn't a new way of doing things. However, the U.S. Treasury Department, who was in charge of overseeing alcohol enforcement, estimated that by the mid-1920s, some 60 million gallons, sorry, John, of industrial alcohol were stolen annually in order to supply the country's drinkers. So I know I should have put that in liters, but this is an American story, and so the source material is in gallons. Ah, yes. (laughs) In response, in 1926, President Calvin Coolidge's government turned to chemistry as an enforcement tool. Calvin Coolidge. That's his name. <laughs> I think like, you laughed at him last time I talked about did him. Did you too. talk about him before? I've talked about him before, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems likely that I would laugh at <laughs> the name Coolidge. They turned to adding more chemicals to poison these industrial alcohols. The idea was to scare people into giving up illicit drinking. Ah, uh, it's like how... Um, I, <laughs> so I'm just going to let the listeners in, 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 on, in on something. I... Well, I'm not a I'm not a drug fiend or anything like that. I know surprising the man that doesn't drink. But I was saying yesterday, I'm like, we we're watching. Oh, we were watching Bandersnatch, uh, the Black Mirror episode, and they take LSD. And I was like, man, I would have loved to just like give that a try back in the day, just to see what it's like. But now that shit's li- li- you know littered with fentanyl, mm-hmm. so I'm like, that's way too risky. So now I'm like. I ain't going to try that shit. Yeah. So the difference, though, is that it's not really the government is putting... No, no, no. The yeah. the, the, drug, the drug guys who want you... Because it isn't the fentanyl idea to get you more hooked on it. I'm not 100% sure. I yeah. don't know. I haven't studied Well, either it. way, they ruined drugs for me. They really did. So, yeah. But the government, this is the government is actually doing it in yeah. this case. So I think that's the interesting part. Here. Yeah, for sure. In the 1920s, there were about 70 denaturing formulas. Most of these simply added poisonous methyl alcohol into the mix. Others used bitter-tasting compounds that were less lethal and designed to make the alcohol taste so awful that it was undrinkable. Mm. They just piss in it. (laughs) Piss in the alcohol. Gross. (laughs) In order to sell the stolen alcohol, the crime gangs employed chemists to renature the products, hopefully returning them to their drinkable state. The bootleggers actually paid their chemists a lot more than the government did, and they excelled at their jobs. Stolen and redistilled alcohol became the primary source of liquor in the country. So in response, the federal government ordered their manufacturers to make their products even more deadly. By mid-1927, the new denaturing formulas now included some notable poisons. Kerosene and brucine, which is a plant alkaloid closely related to strychnine, gasoline, benzene, cadmium, iodine, zinc, 
mercury salts, nicotine, ether, formaldehyde, chloroform, camphor, carbolic acid, quinine, and acetone. The Treasury Department also demanded more methyl alcohol be added so that it made up 10% of the product. Wow. It was the methyl alcohol that proved to be the most deadly. The results were immediate, starting with a horrific holiday spate of deaths in the closing days of 1926. On Christmas Eve 1926, when a man stumbled into the emergency room at New York City's Bellevue Hospital, he was flushed and gasping with fear. Santa Claus, he kept telling the nurses, was just behind him, brandishing a baseball bat. So it was a hallucination. You're right. That's why, yeah, you got it. Nice. Before the staff realized just how sick the man was, as the hallucination was a result of alcohol poisoning. Told you I was a genius. The man died. And then another holiday party goer, and then another. As dusk fell on Christmas, the hospital staff counted up more than 60 people made desperately ill by alcohol, and eight of them ended up dying. Oh, only eight? Over the next two days... Sorry, I just... uh, That was on one day. One day. But out of the 60 people that came in? Yeah. Interesting. I thought that... uh, I thought it was, like, super deadly that it would have killed them all. Yeah. But I guess maybe it would be dependent on how much you ingested, too, right? So maybe the the eight that died, they ingested a lot more. Yeah. And also the fact that the government just killed eight people. There's that, too. We can't get away from that. (laughs) That's the thing that I'm stuck on. Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Over the next two days, another 23 people died in the city from celebrating the holiday season and drinking the alcohol. Now, based on all the information I told you prior to this event, doctors were accustomed to alcohol poisoning, as it was a routine part of medical life during the Prohibition era. The bootlegger whiskeys and so-called gin often made people sick. Those liquors produced in hidden stills, frequently became tainted with metals and other impurities. However, this outbreak was bizarrely different. And, as we now know with hindsight, the deaths came thanks to the U.S. government. Public health officials responded with shock. The government knows it is not stopping drinking by putting poison in alcohol, New York City medical examiner Charles Norris said at a hastily organized press conference. Yet, it continues its poisoning processes, heedless to the fact that people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison. Knowing this to be true, the United States government must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, although it cannot be held legally responsible. Hmm. Which I thought was very interesting, because, like, they are responsible for these deaths because they purposely poisoned it. But but... they can't be held responsible? Right. Yeah, because I think, I don't think they were doing it secretly. I think they were like... Well, these are not ingestible, po- like alcohol. You shouldn't be drinking it. There's a, <laughs> you know, those like warnings on smoke la- labels, like <laughs> you're gonna get cancer. They're just like they put it on the bottle. It's like we poison this. Well- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think like I was talking to my friend whose partner is a lawyer, and like yeah. absolutely they can get away with it because they're not, they're not doing it sneakily. I guess. Mm. Um even though it is, like, super ethically and morally so, awful. So the people that ingested this alcohol, did they know it was there was poison in it? Well, so what was happening, right, is that they were getting their alcohol from crime gangs or whatever who were renaturing it. So they were, um, like, putting, putting it through a process that would hopefully mm-hmm. take out the poison. But not guarantee it. Yeah. Um. So they're, like, taking their own... It's kind of the same as your example that you gave about the um, fentanyl in an LSD uh-huh. pill. You're, you're like, well, this might be it's the a time. risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Okay, so <laughs> if I ever, if I ever like show back up on this podcast and I'm just like 
tweaked out of my mind, just like, like oh, I'm just acting suspiciously uh, unusual. Um, I have fentanyl in my system, okay. <laughs> just so you know. All right. <laughs> so Norris's department issued warnings to citizens detailing the dangers of the whiskey that was circulating in the city. One 1928 alert read, practically all the liquor was dangerous. Mm -hmm. He published every death by alcohol poisoning and then assigned his toxicologist to analyze confiscated whiskey for poisons. The list that I mentioned previously came in part from studies done by the New York City Medical Examiner's Office. Norris also condemned the federal program for its disproportionate effects on the country's poorest residents. He pointed out that wealthy people could afford the best whiskey available. Most of those who were sick and dying were those who could not afford expensive protection and had to deal with the low-grade stuff. In 1926, in New York City, 1,200 people were sickened by poisonous alcohol, while 400 died. The following year, the death toll rose to 700. These numbers were repeated in cities around the country as public health officials nationwide joined in the angry assault of the government. Furious anti-prohibition legislators pushed for the halt of the use of lethal chemistry. Senator James Reed of Missouri was quoted as saying, Only one possessing the instincts of a wild beast would desire to kill or make blind the man who tastes a drink of liquor, even if he purchased it from one violating the prohibition statutes. By the time prohibition ended in 1933, the federal poisoning program had killed an estimated 10,000 people. Holy shit. Officially, the special denaturing or poisoning program ended only once the 18th Amendment was repealed. That is, the removal of prohibition. I feel like these the people that were denaturing this, these black market people, uh, didn't do a great job. The, well, the denaturing was the uh, putting the poison in. Oh, sorry. The the, the people who were repurposing. What were they doing? The people that were taking Renaturing. The people that were renaturing it. I don't feel like they did a great job. That's fair. That's fair. But the chemists' war itself faded away before then. Slowly, government officials quit talking about it. And when Prohibition ended and good grain whiskey reappeared, it was almost as if the wildness of Prohibition and the poisonous measures taken to enforce it had never even happened. So, Dakota, what do you think? It's crazy that they got away with this. I know. So. And then, like, I had never heard of this before. Really? Yeah. yeah. Until you looked. Until I researched it, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And what was the time period on this? 1920s. 1920 mm. to 1930. Oh, bet they were saying floppy cock <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i mean so the part of it that i'm like so that quote by james reed like only one possessing the instincts of a wild man yeah. or a wild beast would desire to kill somebody i think like i think we see a lot of that in um politics today where they're like you know i'm gonna go back to the roe v wade right we know prohibition st stopping something doesn't work right like yeah. if you make it illegal it's still gonna happen mm -hmm. um and the fact that the people making this legislation are so dead set on their legislation being passed that they don't actually care about what happens to the humans. This is sorry. This is the uh, abortion thing, right? Both, both. I think it's a really interesting. Both what? So both this prohibition poisoning. Yeah, no, no. I'm asking what probate way it is. That's the abortion thing, right? Yes. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um. So I think that like legislators desire to. Yeah you know a couple things like their moral beliefs they're they're just so blinded by what is not actual truth For that sure. they forget the humanity that exists by yeah. these laws yeah i mean if they're if they're gonna make a, you know abortion le illegal well then they're gonna have to ban all coat hangers then too because okay? <laughs> like they uh, you know humans will 
of a find a way but like actually they will so (laughs) right we're gonna have back alley abortions again where people die yes yeah so it's just it's so interesting i just think like you know what is wrong with not what is wrong but i think this is just another example of allowing religion to get into your politics Mm -hmm. it doesn't work well yeah no i mean (laughs) and there's supposed to be separation of church and state anyways yeah yeah, it's crazy. It's like, you know, I guess just to speak to us, you know, a, a little bit, you know, just bring you into our, our inner circle. This is just for just for you listeners. Uh, you know, well, like we Liz and I have talked about how we, you know, we do believe in God. We're technically Christians, but it sucks that we have to say technically <laughs> in that um, because uh, fuck religion. <laughs> well, absolutely. It's it's a, a you know what humans have done to what should be a beautiful thing based on just loving each other is just you know i believe there is a god but i believe that he would also be so disappointed in us i agree (laughs) as humans yeah (laughs) so uh so yeah fuck religion and that's like uh, yeah i don't like being associated with Mm -hmm. those Pratt's truth so chris Pratt. Uh, so i yeah this, this was somewhat interesting um you know i i i'm i'm glad it was a short a shorter one because it, it i don't think it would have kept me for a full that's fair 45 minutes so i'm gonna give this 6.5 inch floppy cocks out of 10 stop it but it you're bad boy yeah okay hey hey come on in in matter of penises 6.5 inches is pretty good dakota (laughs) uh come on the listeners are going to grow and to stop it no (laughs) i uh i'm disappointed with a 6.5 are you (laughs) what you you uh you like you like an eight incher hey (laughs) no you're bad stop that no i think I thought this was a very interesting episode, and I'm disappointed that you didn't think I'm it was sorry. as good as me. I think it's interesting, like, the crazy that the government did this, but, like, I don't know. There was some details about it that I was just like, ah, not, not, I'm not, like, jiving with this. Maybe it's because you sent me up for a, a Santa Claus episode. I don't know. Maybe it's your... You know what? I'm just going to victim blame and say it's <gasps> your fault. Rude. So, All right. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please download our podcast from wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review, or tell your friends about us, because indie podcasts really do grow through word of mouth. If you want to stay in contact, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian, on Facebook under The Reluctant Historian Podcast, or leave us a tip at buymeacopy.com slash thehistorian. You can also shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted to thereluctanthistorian.com. Nope, thereluctanthistorian at gmail.com. So, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. Because it's a Christmas episode. <laughs> <laughs>